Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of life. The summer when I was in seventh grade, heading into eighth grade, I went to district camp at Camp Egan. And it shows you what kind of kid I was that I remember what the theme of the curriculum was. Nerd alert. But it was wise as serpents, gentle as doves. Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. That's taken from Matthew 10 when Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, I want you to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. I've thought of that phrase many times when I've been faced with a difficult situation. Be wily. If you have cunning, use it. Use your street smarts. Look over your shoulder. Keep your keys in your hand and your cell phone in the other and be careful, but also be kind. I think if you have a teenager right now or you used to have one or you're planning to have one, you wanted or want or will want that child to be somebody who is wise as a serpent but gentle as a dove, nice to everyone around, friendly, likable, and liking of people, but also a kid that's not gonna be duped, that's not gonna be taken advantage of, a kid who's willing to say something is wrong when something wrong is going on. That's what God was asking of Joseph in this story, where we've just left the Magi, or rather they have just left us, I guess. They've just left the baby Jesus and warned in a dream of King Herod's scheme, as James Taylor phrases it in his song about this event, they went home by another way. There's a lot of dreaming, there's a lot of communicating going on, and there are a lot of forewarnings, 
a lot of pieces of advice that God is giving out. Be careful, don't go that way. Don't stay here, don't stay here. Go there, but don't go there. Be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. I discovered this show yesterday called The Mandalorian. And okay, like three of you laugh, so they say know your audience. So those of you who've watched the show, it's a Star Wars spinoff um, that's on a channel called Disney Plus that I didn't even know existed. But you can watch it for six days as a trial for free. Watch all you want and before they charge you for it. So I wanted to find out what that was all about. And here's this warrior in a postmodern suit of armor who is a bounty hunter going off into all kinds of dark and scary places, fighting monsters and enemies and so on, and bringing them back alive if possible, or if it's not possible, just bringing them back. One of the enemies that he encounters is a tiny little green being who's in a futuristic bassinet, I guess you could say a futuristic car seat, and we soon discover that it's Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda is someone he's supposed to bring back for a bounty. And I actually went out in the garage and did some laundry, and I don't understand how he got Baby Yoda out of the hands of the enemy people. But anyway, winds up in episode four. Episode four, he winds up with Baby Yoda, and they go all over the place together. So we find out what a Yoda creature was like as a baby. Totally innocent, yet with sort of divine powers. He stops a big rhinoceros-looking thing with a huge horn from killing his protector by holding up his little three-fingered hand and doing that mm, Jedi thing, and he holds off the monster, and then our hero is saved, and the hero looks at Baby Yoda in a whole different way. But what amazed me through those four episodes, the ones that I watched in their entirety, was that Baby Yoda is just right next to the action all the time, and this little bassinet is not much to protect him. Here's this innocent baby right in the, in the center of the fighting, and somehow he's protected because the Mandalorian, the star of the show, is wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. I'll let you know how the next four episodes turn out, and I'm determined to watch them before they charge my credit card. <laughs> So this story of Jesus, and I've just compared Jesus to baby Yoda, but the story of this innocent child who's been born the Messiah in not great circumstances reminds us that whatever nativity scene we've built in our living room or we've seen in front of a hospital here doesn't tell the whole story. It wasn't all glowing with light and everybody probably wasn't smiling and they certainly didn't have much time to rest and enjoy the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh before Joseph, like another dreamer named Joseph in the Old Testament, is warned in this dream by God to get up, take the child and its mother, and go to Egypt. Matthew is the one who understands Jesus as the new Moses. And Matthew is going to be the one of the four Gospels that ties everything to the Hebrew scriptures. 
And as I read the Bible just now, you heard me say, this was to fill the prophecy that said, this was to fulfill, to fulfill the scripture that this was, this should remind you, this should remind you, Jewish listeners, of what you knew by studying the scripture as a child, what your parents taught you. So unlike the chosen people when they were led out of Egypt by Moses with God's help, suddenly this chosen holy family is led to Egypt from the promised land, which is not safe because this paranoid king has decided that all the babies age two and younger should be destroyed. Now, Alan Culpepper, who's a New Testament commentator, says, at this time, the village of Bethlehem was just a village, and we think of this as a genocide, which it was, but it probably incorporated about 20 children. Based on the number of people we think lived there or around there, it wasn't thousands of children. It was maybe 20, 25. Still, that's 25 too many just because a king is afraid that one of them will grow up and become a king who will threaten his power. But five dreams in this story propel the action that keeps our Messiah safe. So this baby that was just received, he had just received unbelievably valuable gifts from these magi, this very poor family that all of a sudden is given a bunch of gold and maybe inexplicable to them, frankincense and myrrh, prophetic spices that are also very valuable, have these things in their pockets as God tells them to go from Israel to Egypt. According to MapQuest, if you were going to go from the general area of where the Holy Family was on foot, down to Egypt, if you walked at a pretty good pace for eight hours a day, it would take you 18 days. If you walked four hours a day, it would take you 36 days. And don't forget that there would be obstacles along the way. You would be walking through desert a good bit of the way. No water, no shade. You would be fighting with wild animals who might think that you smelled good or you smelled tasty. You might run into people who had a different skin color than you or spoke a different language, who were afraid of you or wanted to beat you up and leave you for dead and take what might be in your pockets. Maybe that gold came in handy as this holy family made this treacherous journey from the promised land to the newly promised land where they would find safety. Surely when they got to Egypt, they were the standouts they were the people who didn't look like anybody else. They were, pe- they were the people whose skin tone was different, whose language was different, whose customs were different. And not only did these two adults have to get used to having a brand new baby, they had to get used to having a brand new baby in a completely foreign country where they had to learn where to find food, how to cook food, where to live. All we know of the details is that God said it would be okay and Joseph trusted God, and it was okay, and the Messiah survived. Alan Culpepper says that this story is all about call and promise. It's all about what God is calling us to do. We're all called, he writes here in this reading, to renew our hope. At Jesus' birth, violent forces seek his life, just as violent forces had sought the life of Moses 
Those violent forces at his birth foreshadow the violence that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Nevertheless, he is delivered from Herod's murderous intent, just as the people of God were delivered from Pharaoh. Even more so, Jesus will eventually be delivered from death itself. Matthew dares to see things as they are and still affirm that God is working even in the worst that we can do. Nothing can defeat God's promise of Emmanuel, God with us. God present with us in the flesh. Well, I don't know how many of you are kind of over Christmas at this point. There may be some of you who've taken down your Christmas tree and put everything away and what's next, Valentine's Day? Do you already have all of that up? But technically, we're not even halfway through with Christmas time. Our culture moves on and we move from pre-Christmas sales to after Christmas sales. Our neighbors' outdoor lights kind of start disappearing. And especially when we have warm days, we start thinking about spring and St. Patrick's Day and other holidays that are coming up. But it wasn't that long ago when Christmas was, if not a bigger deal, a longer deal. And it really did cause a celebration for 12 days that stopped life as we know it. There's a free channel on your TV called PBS. I discover that all the time. And because of the generosity of the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation and the John T. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and viewers like you, <laughs> thank you. You can watch PBS anytime and they have the best stuff on there. I know, nerd alert, but watch it once in a while and you will learn something. I think it was Thursday when I was home. There was a program on about Tudor England, which is not a time or place I necessarily want to go back to. It wasn't an easy time of life unless you were King Henry VIII. Awfully hard on his many spouses but they did a historical feature on what a Christmas would have been like during that time in England. Some of you know that my sister and I made a pact before Christmas, right after Thanksgiving, that we would not eat sweets of any kind, candy, cakes, cookies, pies, until Christmas morning. The one thing I allowed myself was the creamer that I like to put in my coffee, but I was pretty much off sugar and so was my sister until Christmas morning, which I figured was 12.05 after the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> so the two little Ghirardelli peppermint bark squares that I had stolen from a party earlier in the day went right in here when you were singing the hallelujah chorus. I was not singing, I was eating candy right up there in, on the second story in Bishop's Hall. And I hear from another time zone my sister was doing the same after the church service that she attended. And someone said to me, why are you doing that? This is not Lent. And I said, yes, but apparently in the past, Advent really was supposed to be like a Lent. For one thing, it made me realize how much sugar I eat on a daily basis and I ought not to do that. For another thing, it made me think twice before I ate a snack. It made me think twice before every meal, and it made me stop and think about God, 
because I told Kathy, if things got hard, we'll just think of this as a spiritual discipline and then maybe that will change our attitudes. Apparently in Tudor England, they did fast all through Advent. No meat and no dairy products. So what did that leave these people? Root vegetables, I guess. Anything you can make from a potato or a turnip. Mmm. No leafy greens. There was no produce section at the grocery store they could go to. So these people really were probably pretty hungry and got pretty skinny by the end of Advent. They worked, worked, worked. They didn't take any time off until Christmas Eve, and that's when the work stopped and the party started to begin. Midnight Mass was just the beginning of it. And then Christmas Day started a 12-day time of feasting. All kinds of animals were killed and cooked and eaten. And there were sweets and there was savory and there was lots to drink and there was lots of dancing and music and so on. You learn in the documentary that they did some things that we kind of have stolen and now we do them on Halloween. People would put on masks and go door to door and ask for treats. Never thought of that as being a part of Christmas. But on the fourth day of a Tudor Christmas, they stopped the reveling just for a break and noticed that it was the day, the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And that is a day when Christians remembered that those 20 or so babies were killed because of Herod's paranoia. The Coventry Carol that I've enjoyed listening to or singing as a solo all these years is really a song, a lullaby to those children who disappeared because of Herod. It says, Lule, Lule, my little tiny child. Bye bye, Lule, Lule. That really meant goodbye, go to sleep. What an awful, awful thing to have to go through as a mother. In the midst of that reveling, it struck me that these Christian people thought about those who have disastrous things happen in their lives. And certainly the people that lived in the 1500s knew that one third of the population would not make it to adulthood. They had diseases that we don't have to mess with anymore. They didn't have the medical care that we have. They didn't have nutrition and the knowledge of it the way that we do. So death was all around them in that time. So they prayed that these little souls would go to heaven and that Christ would meet them there. Away in a manger sort of hints at that. This farewell to these children who died. Jesus didn't die though, not right away. He got to live a full life until it was time for Good Friday. But he lived long enough to be our Messiah and to teach us how to love and how to live and what is truly right and the things that are truly wrong. And he, of all people, must have been raised with this specter of children disappearing. And he said very solemnly and very seriously, let the children come to me. We know that he put children first. We are called to do that in our Christian faith as well. Anytime we see something abusive done to a child, we are we are required to report that, to raise a hand and say, I don't think this looks like a good situation. We are always tasked to take care of the children in our midst. 
and I feel that we are called to fight bullying every time we can. I grew up before everybody was on the computer. Email didn't really become a thing until I was in college, and we certainly didn't have Facebook until I was fully into adulthood. So I can't imagine what it's like to be a young person these days and have to live with the pressure that social media brings. Have you heard the story of Lily Velasquez? She's a 30-year-old now, and she lives in Austin, Texas. She was born with a syndrome that is caused by a genetic mutation. It was not inherited from her parents or her grandparents. It was just a fluke of nature. It's called Marfan lipodystrophy syndrome. Lipo means fat. Well, basically, that's what it means. If you have liposuction, you have your fat removed. If you have lipodystrophy, that means you have trouble maintaining the fat you are supposed to have in your body. Lizzie cannot gain weight, and she struggles to maintain enough weight to keep her alive. So think about your face. It's little pads of fat that make you as pretty as you are and round out your eye sockets and your cheeks. Uh, as much as we all complain about, oh, I should take off two or three pounds, you need some fat in your body to make body processes work and to make us all look the way we do. She has a very, very <clears throat> bony face. She's blind in one eye. It's covered over and kind of blue. Doesn't match her pretty brown natural eyes that she got from her parents. She's so rakishly thin that you can't help but notice her. I watched a documentary about her too before I watched Baby Yoda. This one was free as well. And when she first comes onto the screen, the documentary called Brave Heart, I should mention, when she first is there, you're taken aback by her look. But after an hour, strangely enough, she looks just as normal as anybody you know because you've gotten to know her and you've heard her story. When she was a tiny child, her parents did such a good job of telling her that she was just as pretty as anybody else and no different from anybody else, that it was a shock to her when she went to public school first and was in her pre-K class and so many of her little friends were scared of her or pointed at her or cried when they saw her. So on the second day of school, her dad, who was a teacher in another age level down the hall, decide he decided he would come and stand up with her and say, I want to tell you about Lizzie. Lizzie is different, and let me explain why. And he probably didn't say Marfan lipodystrophy syndrome to those little pre-K kids, but he explained to them on a level that they could understand. And suddenly, she was accepted and just one of the kids. He started doing that every year, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, just so the new kids would understand and it would spare her some of that taunting and, and some of the funny looks. Remarkably, the opposite of most of us, by the time she reached seventh grade, she had become pretty confident. And on her first day of eighth grade, she said, Daddy, I don't need you to come in and explain me anymore. I can handle it. She had a wonderfully smooth transition from eighth grade to ninth grade. Tenth grade, she tried out for the cheerleading team and she was accepted. She was cheerleading for all of the football and basketball games. Scrapbook pictures in the documentary show what a happy circle of friends she had. But here comes the internet. 
When she was 17, supposedly doing her homework, she decided to goof around and waste some time on YouTube. And she found a web, uh, found a YouTube page that was entitled The World's Ugliest Woman. And it was a video of her. It had been taken from the local news one time when she was interviewed, and she was horrified to see that there were four million views and almost as many comments that were cruel and horrible. Why did her parents even keep her, one said. Why doesn't she do the world a favor and just die? Comments came like the details of a car wreck and she couldn't take her eyes away. She told her parents about it. Her parents were horrified. Her parents learned as much as they could about YouTube and found out how to take a video down that is harmful. But the man who put it up emailed them and said, you're making me take it down, but as soon as I take it down, I'm put it, putting it right back up, and you can never stop me. What axe to grind he had against these people, I will never know. I don't understand what kind of a charge he would get out of being so abusive to a person on the internet. But this propelled Lizzie to become a motivational speaker, first in her own high school, then at other high schools, as she went on to college, she would go various places in the town and give motivational speeches. She was even hired to do a TED Talk, and now she's done more than one of those. In the documentary, there's a, a shot of her in the bathroom, in her hotel room, where she was with her mom before she was about to do this TED Talk, and she's got her beautiful long hair all wound around a curling iron, and her phone vibrates, and it's a tweet from her Twitter feed that says, you blanking ugly person, put a gun to your head and die. And unlike the way I would have reacted, she said, well, I guess that shows that I still have a lot of work to do. She now has a YouTube channel that has had 54 million views, which is 13 and a half times as many views as that ugly one had. She's been published twice, and her life is laid out for her. She has a career. She has a future. She has the love of family that are all around her. And she has so many millions of people who love her who've never met her. Herod the king, in his raging, ordered the slaughter of the innocents. We ought not to act like Herod. We ought to follow God's command and listen to God saying to us, leave this place. Don't go there. Don't pay that one any mind. You're better than those people. You don't have to put up with this. Life is meant to be fuller than that kind of thing. Culpepper said, those violent forces at Jesus' birth foreshadowed the violence that will ultimately lead to his death. Nevertheless, he is delivered just as Lizzie was delivered. Even more so, Jesus will eventually be delivered from death itself. And as we are called to be God's people who breathe in every day the Holy Spirit and breathe out resurrection, we too are freed from death. Matthew dares to see things as they are and still affirm that God is working even in the worst that we can do. Nothing can defeat God's promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.